For this podcast episode, I'm going to be interviewing Mr. Eric O'Neill. He went to Auburn and majored in psychology and political science and is currently an author, attorney, attorney, keynote speaker, and spy hunter. Um, so basically, to, right. st- to start, I was wondering if you could kind of tell me about your current career and just a little background on what you do kind of on the day to day. Absolutely. I do a number of things. I'm <clears throat> a published author. I'm writing my next book. Uh, my, my second book is on cybercrime. I'm also a pretty voracious public speaker. I just got back from a keynote over or a panel over at South by Southwest in Austin, and uh, I'll be in San Diego next week. And then the following week, I'm not, I'd have to look at my calendar, but I, I speak for a lot of everything from companies to industry events to big organizations. A lot of what I speak on is cybersecurity right now and um, counter espionage. I also run a company called the Georgetown Group that does uh, intelligence research for corporate clients. We do a lot of work in venture capital and mergers and equities to try to ensure that our clients can trust the entity they're buying or the people that they're going to go work with. And I also work for a charity called Global Communities, where I do work in the humanitarian and development sectors to improve the lives of people all over the world. And adding to that, I'm a, I'm a dad, I have three kids and, and, and a husband, and so I keep very busy. Wow. Uh, and I guess the last thing I should say is I'm also the national security strategist for VMware, mm-hmm. which is one of the top cloud security companies, and, uh, and that is where I do most of my cybersecurity work. Wow, very, very busy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I keep busy. So um, basically, can you talk about like what you studied in college and why, and if you knew what your career path you wanted to take? Sure. So uh, as you know, I went to Auburn, War Eagle. I, uh, I studied, I double majored in psychology and political science. I, I came to Auburn for aerospace engineering. I had designs to go to the Naval Academy. The idea was that I would go to Auburn for a, just a year. And then, uh, and then I would matriculate into the Naval Academy or Air Force, actually, I was looking at both as a first year. I got in one year deferred uh, and decided to stay in Auburn. Not only stay at Auburn, I decided I, I wasn't really into engineering and, and moved over to the College of Liberal Arts and uh, where psychology was. Um, part of that was for, you know, I had taken a class in psychology in high school that I loved. I was reading way too much John Grisham, and I thought in my mind I would um, I had study psychology, then go to law school, and I would be a jury picker. I would be I'd do criminal cases, and I would find the perfect jury, and that's and and do those profiles and backgrounds. Uh, I guess the moral here is you never really know where you're going to go. the The, the point is to work very hard wherever you are, and that will create opportunities for you in the future. Graduating Auburn with um, my liberal arts degree, I didn't have a lot of job opportunities, unfortunately. And um, so I came back to Washington, D.C., and I became a consultant, a litigation-based consulting. I did that for a year. Uh, Wasn't ready to sit behind a desk and manipulate PowerPoint Mm -hmm. decks. In fact, I'm still not ready to do that. And I wanted to find something, something that... I can marry to the things that I wanted to do by going into the Navy. I wanted to make the world a better place. I wanted to change the world. You know, very, you know, 21 years old and and, and I wanted to make a huge difference. And so uh, what I did was I applied to the FBI, the DEA, the NSA, the 
Secret Service and all of uh, the, all of the different civilian based uh, law enforcement and intelligence groups, right? Uh, quickly heard back from the FBI and the DEA and chose the FBI by one day and the rest, the rest actually is history. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you could do it again, would you still major in what you did or would you switch it up since you said there wasn't as many opportunities? I think it worked. I think it worked out for me. Now, what that meant was I ended up getting a higher degree. So with a liberal arts degree, you end up setting yourself up to go get your next degree. Right. You, you learn to learn and then you go get you, your degree in your profession. So I went uh, I went to law school, I ended up going to George Washington University Law School in D.C. I was working for the FBI at the time, so I had to pick D- D.C. schools and um, I muddled through and I went to the night program there. So I'd work for the bureau all day and then I would go to classes at night. And then when my target moved at night, I'd have to miss class and then explain to the professors. But one of the reasons I chose GW over uh, a school like Georgetown was the, the the professors at GW were practitioners. They were also attorneys who worked all day or they were judges. And so they understood that that when you go to the night program, life gets in the way and you, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you have to miss class. And I was always struggling to get notes from people. And I, I would if I could do anything different, I would I would have found a way to go to law school day school and had a lot of fun. <laughs> For sure. So did you go to law school right after you graduated Auburn or was there a couple years in between? No, I worked. So after I graduated Auburn, I worked for the year uh, as a uh, consultant and then another year for the Foreign Claims Settlement Commission while I waited to, I had gotten into the FBI, but I had to wait a full year for my background investigation to come through for my top secret security clearance. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I I didn't know that. So I quit my job. I was like, I'm going to the FBI and I quit. And then the FBI is like, oh, it's going to take a while for your clearance. We can't tell you how long. <laughs> I was like, I have to find another job. So I went into the Department of Justice, um, worked for foreign claim, foreign claim settlement. And then I uh, finally got into the FBI, went to Quantico. So it wasn't, I, I think it was my second year in the FBI. So it was one, two, three, four years after graduating from Auburn that I started law school. And part of the reason was, and where I was in the FBI, I realized I'm not going to be able to be promoted much farther without a higher degree. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, 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 and had always planned to go to law school. It was, it was always something that was in the cards for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so how many years then did you work for the FBI? Are you, is your, you said you are working now for your own company and stuff. Right, right. I, I've since left. I, I worked for the FBI for five straight years, mm-hmm. and I um, I was undercover the entire time. I never came out of cover. It was uh, it, it was very stressful, and it was really after I got married and got put on the Robert Hansen investigation that I started mm-hmm. thinking maybe this isn't you know, you know good long term for uh, any kind of relationship or marriage and started, I was also coming close to graduating from law school. And I even told the FBI, if you'll help pay for law school, I'll commit to staying and being a justice or FBI attorney. Mm -hmm. And like, oh, we don't have a program for that. And I said, well, it's between going into government as an attorney and and making very little or going into, you know, the big corporate law and being able to pay off my student loans. And and that really decided it for me. And so then after the FBI, what was like, what did you do um, to get to where you are now? 
Well, I took a job with a uh, big law firm called Piper Rudnick that then became, it, it merged into what ended up being DLA, Piper Rudnick, after they merged with the biggest European law firm, then you had the biggest American law firm, and it was at the time the biggest law firm in the world, which wasn't the law firm I joined. Um, I, I loved practicing law um, and, and found it, I mean, I learned more there in five years working for DLA Piper. And I'm, I'm not just on the five-year plan in places, but uh, <laughs> but around uh, 2008, I had met a few partners and we decided we were going to start a company that filled in a lot of the gaps uh, and problems that, that I was seeing um, in legal diligence. So, you know, lawyers do their diligence and they do their research and accountants do their diligence and they do the research but as an investigator by trade, that's my training. And I still think of myself as an investigator. Um, that's my background. It, you know, starting with psychology, you, you learn and you research, you investigate. And then the discipline in counterintelligence and counterterrorism at the FBI as a ghost, that's all investigation. That's all I did. So my, my DNA is in investigations. And I, I, I realized that what organizations were not doing is looking at what we call the asymmetrical issues. You can do the legal diligence and you can do the accounting diligence, but you're going to miss a lot of things, particularly lies that the organization you're purchasing or the people you're hiring are not telling you. That's what we find. And so we we spun up a company that does that and a number of other things. And, and within that, uh, within that time, the movie Breach came out mm-hmm. and um, suddenly I became famous and that opened the door to hundreds of other opportunities and and it's it's just been it's been a lot of deciding what's best it it catapulted my speaking career and what Mm -hmm. organizations i want to join on boards and who i want to help with different issues and uh and and so it's been absolutely wonderful Mm -hmm. so more about breach i actually watched that movie um a couple years ago with my grandparents (laughs) they like they were talking about your book and everything. And so how well do you think that the movie like portrayed what actually happened? Well, it's a Hollywood movie, mm-hmm. but I did work on it. I, I wrote the first uh, screenplay mm-hmm. with Bill Rodko and Adam Mazur mm-hmm. and my brother, uh, who, who, is, who is now, you know, a, a Hollywood writer. Uh, and back then he was an aspiring one. And uh, that was that went through the whole process in Hollywood until uh, a director writer named Billy Ray came on board. He's actually the first first talent to come on board after we found a production company. And he decided that, look, I want to, I, I direct what I write. He's, he was a writer first. And um, this would be his second big blockbuster directing debut. The first was Shattered Glass, which, which was another great movie. And he uh, decided he wanted this. He really loves DC. He loves the political angle. He loved the um, the true story, the true crime story. And he and I sat down and, and rewrote it again. Mm-hmm. And uh, and of course, he told me. He said, "Look, you have to understand that this is a Hollywood movie. It's mm-hmm. it's not a documentary. So we're going to embellish a little here and there to, to for the pacing to make it a little bit." crazier to really keep the audience engaged and make it a thriller we're going to create a thriller where people know the ending mm-hmm. and uh and if we can do that if we can pe- keep people at the edge of their seats throughout even though they know the ending mm-hmm. um we're going to do our job 
because you know at the end he gets arrested right mm-hmm. that was that that's part of history <laughs> it was the biggest spy ever to get caught like everybody mm-hmm. was reporting on it um and they did fairly well now of course if you read gray day uh, and you watch the movie. Movie came first. That was 2007. Mm-hmm. Gray Day came. You know, I wrote it recently. That was just released in 2019. And um, I, you know, right before the pandemic. Great timing. But mm-hmm. um, you you can see all the places that things were changed. But you can also see how much of it is very true to the story. Mm-hmm. So overall, were you like happy with the movie? Because I know no, some- I was really happy yeah. with the movie. It was it was a. Uh, absolutely and i've heard some horror stories but this was a um incredibly positive experience from start to finish Mm -hmm. um i I was real happy with ryan philby being casted as me Mm -hmm. we're still friends uh we're we hung out all the time on set uh which which made that even more fun Mm -hmm. um you know i still i still text him and ask him about things like i'm (laughs) going like i texted him the other day i'm going to south by southwest have you ever been oh yeah man i've gone a bunch of times (laughs) like first time give me some tips right Mm -hmm. and um and it was uh it it was especially a good experience because the movie was done well it went it 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 uh did very well it got a lot of critical acclaim Mm -hmm. and didn't flop which helps a lot uh people still watch the movie it holds Mm -hmm. up because it's shot so well and uh almost like a period piece and it um and like I said, it's opened tons of doors for me. People just are actually more excited that there's a movie made about me than the fact that I've got a best-selling book. <laughs> what was the coolest part about like being on set and watching the whole film process happen? Yeah, you know, easily, that's an easy one to ask because it was being part of the process. Mm-hmm. It was like getting paid to tour all of the aspects of a movie. I mean, people would pay to to be able to get the access I had. I worked with every department, costume, props, the armorer, you know, who who pulled me into a room, opened the door to a locked room, and then he had all of his suitcases mm-hmm. open with all every kind of firearm. Like, what, what should we use for Hanson? What should we use for the arresting agents? What should we use? You know, getting to pick all the different weapons. And um, I, I worked with, uh, obviously, Billy Ray in writing it. I worked with casting. I got, I got to meet the different actors and talk to everyone who was going to play me. And then we were talking about who's going to play my wife and Kate. And um, I, I spent a lot of time with actors like Chris Cooper, Laura Linney, Dennis Haysbert. I spent an entire day on set just hanging out with Dennis. And, uh, and he ruined the ending of a, a season of 24 for me, so, <laughs> <laughs> which is a great story. I mean, it was, and, the, and then of course the, uh, the friendship that I built with uh, Ryan, who is is literally the only person who's ever walked a mile in my shoes. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a really cool experience to have. Oh. Not, not a lot of people can say that they <laughs> that they've had a movie about them, but that's right. Now, yeah, that, it, there are very few. And the way Ryan put it, he said, typically when he is playing a um, a real life person, mm-hmm. they're either dead and he's playing them when they were young, or uh, they're, they're, they're old enough that it's like talking to his dad, but here, mm-hmm. I, I think I'm a year older. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it was more like, uh, a friendship and he could have very easily decided that I don't want to spend time with Eric because I'm trying to create the character, but he looked at it as the more time I spend with him, the more I can understand the character to the point where my wife walked up to him on set after they cut and 
and looked at him and said, you know, I've read the script. Like what you just said wasn't in there. You totally ad-libbed. And that was 100% Eric. And I was like, where'd you get that? He's like, I've been hanging out with your husband for a while. <laughs> and, and she said, this is eerie. This is really strange. And he just, he just laughed. He's like, then I'm doing my job. <laughs> so you said that the like movie obviously changed your life. What was like the biggest impacts it had? The biggest impact that that movie has had on my life is it allowed me to catapult a very successful public speaking career. And I found the thing that I'm really passionate about. I love to speak to audiences. I love to get up on stage. I love to tell a story. Um, most of it is about cybersecurity and somehow I make that thrilling and fun and inspiring uh, where most can't. And so I, I, um, I'm most grateful to Breach for starting that career. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said you're writing another book, correct? I am. I've got my fifth draft now of my proposal. So fingers crossed. What happens is your your agent, and I've got a very good one, takes the proposal to the publishers. And um, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully this, this my latest draft is with my agent. And if he, he says, I think we're ready, <laughs> then it will go out. But when, when you say a proposal, a propo- so the way that you write, nonfiction mm-hmm. is you draft a very complex and persuasive proposal. Mine is over 20,000 words. So, you know, it's, it's not just like a few pages of paper mm-hmm. and it, it tells the story in a digestible manner that, uh, that a publisher can read a potential editor can read, um, without telling everything, right. You don't mm-hmm. want to play all your cards, but just enough that they get hooked. Mm-hmm. And then you get paid in advance and then you write the book. Mm-hmm. Whereas in nonfiction, which I've written some nonfiction, you write the entire manuscript, you polish it until it's as perfect as it possibly can be. And then you polish it again and then you submit it to publishers and, and, and 99% of them turn it down because selling you know, fiction is really hard um, mm-hmm. unless you hit it just right. Uh, and then you hope for that one that will buy your book and publish it. So how many years did it take you to write this book and how many years did it take you to write the first book? So Gray Day, because I I had been speaking about this for over a decade, mm-hmm. it took me a summer to write it, my first draft. And then, of mm-hmm. course, it was it was a year. I, I wrote the first draft. I wrote the whole first draft. Then mm-hmm. I turned it into a proposal with my agent and then it sold remarkably fast. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I worked for a little less than a year with a um, editor at Crown Mm -hmm. and turned it into Gray Day. Uh, Had to write a lot of extra things. She said, you need a whole chapter on this. You're missing this. Um, But the core of my story was there because it's my story. That was easy Mm -hmm. compared to the cybercrime book I'm writing right now, which has required an enormous amount of research Mm -hmm. because while there are many personal stories in there, I'm telling us this theme, the story that I'm really telling, the thread that carries through all of the narrative is about how cybercrime grew to such ginormous proportions. Like, how did we get here? Like, what were all of the things, the historical moments that created this? And, you know, because I am who I am, I began with spies. I leave off at the end of Grey Day where, you know, there are no hackers, there are only spies. And talking about how espionage they're the best in breed and criminals have now copied them. They've Mm -hmm. created their own criminal syndicates that, that follow along and model the best intelligence agencies and stealing our data. Mm -hmm. 
So it's um it, it's a fun it's it's a fun book. It's a very sobering book. It it's a it it will be a troubling book for people to read, but I think that it's important for people to understand. Now we're downplaying the breadth of this this problem. Mm-hmm. When you were like in college, would you have ever thought that you would be an author in the future? Or yes, mm-hmm. uh, yes. My my dream uh, from oh God, I can't remember how far back in grade school uh, was to be a published author. I would, I'd throw it all away. When I published my, um, when I published Gray Day, that was the number one thing that's been on my bucket list, you know, since as early Mm -hmm. as I can remember. I'm a voracious reader. I spent, I spent my, my, my youth reading Mm -hmm. like every moment I could. I was that kid in high school who, you know, was sitting in a big window well with a book during my free period. Mm -hmm. Um, just, just trying to get a chapter done before the bell rang. So um, a huge reader, always wanted to be a writer and have always seen myself as a published author. I just had to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've had so many like different careers. What would you say was like the most difficult part of your life and in your career? You know, the, the most difficult, the most difficult issue for me has always been to know when to make a change. Mm-hmm. That's very hard. Deciding to deciding at Auburn to leave to leave one of the most prestigious colleges in the United States, aerospace, you know, the, mm-hmm. the engineering college at Auburn is, is just spectacular and, and leaving aerospace. I mean, I got into that program. I had to break my back to get into that program and then, mm-hmm. and, and leaving to go into psychology and then having to tell my parents who I, I thought they were going to disown me. Um, <laughs> that they were, they were actually very good about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then telling them I wasn't going to the Naval Academy. And that was a little bit more difficult. Um, and, and all the changes I've made, I, I have always seen, you, you know, your life is your own mm-hmm. and you have to do the things that are going to make you happy. That said, you also have to do the things that are going to make you successful. And success doesn't always mean happiness, but the trick is getting to the point where you are doing the things that make you happy and they make you really successful. Mm-hmm. That usually comes a little later in life. So you have to put the time in and you have to put the effort in and you got to do the grunt work and you got to do the the uh, boring work. Uh, but, but if you do work hard and you keep building and succeeding and finding that next level of success, you will get there. And I'm finally there. So I get to choose what I want to do and how I do it and where I do it. And I'm, I'm finally in a position where if there's something I don't like, I can just walk away mm-hmm. um, and, and, and not have to worry about where my next paycheck is coming from. Mm-hmm. And now when you were like at Auburn, was there one class that was like most impactful to you, like that you knew exactly kind of what you wanted to do? You know, it's funny. I took a uh, with Auburn and and now I'm I'm forgetting the name of the professor, although I I don't think she's been there for some time. Mm -hmm. I took a uh, law class with um, I I took a a, it it was with Auburn, but it was there's also a a local Alabama law school that mm-hmm. the class was taken through. And it that really was constitutional law. And it really cemented for me that, yes, in the future, I do want to be a lawyer. I, I love the class. I, I found it invigorating. But I got to say, I loved psychology. Mm-hmm. I, I thought very long and hard uh, about going to med school and becoming a psychiatrist. I found the psychology that I learned at Auburn fascinating. Uh, the research that uh, I was doing at Auburn was was great. The professors were were very open. I, I'm not sure 
what it's like now, but you could debate anything in class. Um, and we got into some really crazy uh, arguments between the students and, you know, the, the professors are pretty good about nodding their head and saying, okay, you've talked enough now with your side and um, about everything. Uh, you know, I, I think that what psychology really provided me was a way of thinking, not only about the human mind, but about how to analyze issues. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and that's helped me throughout all of my careers, especially in the FBI. I had to do a psychological profile on my targets and that that background in Auburn because I wanted to go into pathological issues in psychology. I wanted to, to, I wanted to study the criminal mind. That's where I would have gone if I got a master's or uh, a doctorate or went into uh, psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Did you, but when I looked at how much more school I'd have to go to in psychiatry versus <laughs> law school, I was like, yeah, I think we'll do that. <laughs> For sure. Um, have you, are you from Washington DC? Like, did you know you wanted to live there after college or? That- you know, I'm actually from uh, South Carolina. Okay. Yeah, and I, I was born in Charleston. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a Navy brat. We moved around a little bit and then uh, ended up in uh, Connecticut. My father went mm-hmm. to Yale Law School, okay. day student, mm-hmm. lucky him, while my <laughs> mom worked. And then um, we moved to D.C., the D.C. area, when he took his first law firm job. Mm-hmm. And so I lived there, moved to a bunch of different uh, around the area um, until I went to Auburn. And one of the biggest reasons I went to Auburn is I was looking at aerospace programs. Mm-hmm. I got into a number of them and we, we did the tour and I, I walked on to the campus and I just remember the first person who looked at me and just said, hey, that I didn't know. And I've forgotten about how wonderful the South is and how mm-hmm. wonderful people are mm-hmm. and polite. And, and I I just been, uh, you know, when you live in D.C. or, or New York, you, you put up these walls and mm-hmm. and i and i thought hey you know this is like coming home and even and it was also far away mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's something else i wanted so yeah auburn was definitely the right place for me mm-hmm. so what would you say that the biggest life or career lesson over the years that you've learned is yeah the, the biggest the biggest lesson that i've learned and and what i tend to t- tell people is that you you one your life is your own, right? Mm-hmm. So don't listen to what other people say. Listen to advice. Mm-hmm. You, you got to work hard to get where you want to go, but you can, you can make mistakes. You can choose the completely wrong career, or the or the major that's wrong for you, and you have time. You have all these years to fix things, to change things. You, everything we do is an opportunity to learn. Mm-hmm. You know, every event where I speak in front of a crowd is an opportunity to learn about people. Every person who comes up to me and asks for an autograph or says, hey, can I talk to you is a story, Mm -hmm. right? That person has a story. That's something that maybe, you know, just in that conversation, uh, something's going to happen in my mind and I'm going to think of something else that then I can write about, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't have to worry, particularly when you're in college, Mm -hmm. about I've got to have this exact major because this will lead to that. All you have to worry about is getting good grades, you know, establishing yourself as someone who has academic rigor, is a hard worker. Working hard will get you everywhere in life. Um, if you if you work hard, you'll get noticed and then you can move to the next job or the next place. If you don't work hard because you're bored and you don't like it or you don't like your boss, 
you're going to have a lot of trouble moving because that's going to get around. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these, these opportunities come all the time. Um, seeing them is, is part of growing, but that hard work puts you there. I, I like to tell people that luck is for lottery winners. The only real lucky people win the lottery. And I still believe no one wins the lottery. I, I think it's a whole conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. but um, we make our own luck. And, and, and those people that we call lucky are just people who work their butts off and put themselves in the place to succeed. And so, yeah, that's, that's the advice I, I give everyone just really work hard. I tell my kids too, I say, you can go anywhere and do anything, but you know, that doesn't happen unless you get A's, mm -hmm. <laughs> you get A's and the world is all for you. You don't, and you're always going to struggle. So if you majored in something different, do you think you could have ended up in the same place as where you are? You know, it's, it's funny because when you look back on your life, every decision you make puts you where you are uh, and, and just think about. I decided I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. That's how I ended up at Auburn. Mm -hmm. And then I decided I didn't want to do aerospace engineering, which kept me at Auburn, right? And I went into psychology, which reinforced something I always wanted to do was go to law. So all these decisions weren't ever the wrong ones mm -hmm. because who you are at the end of your life, I just turned 50, right? So I'm, I'm really looking back and being reflective. Uh, who you are is is all about the decisions you make for good or bad. Mm -hmm. I I I had a uh, a really serious girlfriend in Auburn, and and we were supposed to get married. That was the whole plan, and then we didn't. And good because then I wouldn't have met the love of my life, who's my wife right now, and have the three children I have. So, you know, e even the things that you think are the most devastating might actually turn out to be the right choices. You, the point is, you never know. Right. You never know until later looking back. And then it doesn't really matter because where you what the path that you took led you to where you are. Um, and if you're happy, then every decision was OK. Mm -hmm. And so you were kind of talking about hard work. Um, what like other habits and beliefs do you think helped you succeed? Yeah, there, there are a, good, a, a couple of good ones. Um, you want to, you want to, when, when you're working, you always want to be on time. Mm -hmm. Always, always be on time. Do everything you possibly can not to be late. You know, now that I've got numbers of employees and I manage tons of people, I see every time someone is early, every time someone is on time, every time I log on to a meeting because now like everything is like this and teams and, Zoom, and that person's already there, right? And I'm not waiting around. The three minutes you might make someone wait is three minutes that that person is looking at their watch thinking, I could have done this, this or that. And I'm just sitting here waiting for this person. Mm -hmm. So you always want to be on time or early. I'm, all, I'm still always early for everything. It, mm -hmm. it amazes. Uh, I, 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 I get paid an enormous amount of money to show up and go up on stage and speak. I'm 15 minutes early for every meeting I need to be with those clients. Mm -hmm. And it boggles their mind because so many speakers are prima donnas and they'll show up an hour late. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and they appreciate it. It gets back to my agent. Then it get it get it gets around to other uh, venues who want to hire me. So so being on time seems like such a small thing, but I can tell you, Katie, it is a problem right now for especially um, the younger generations. They just mm -hmm. are never on time. Um, stay late and do the work. Everybody wants to go home. Everybody wants to go out with their friends. But you know, there's this. There's this moment that I go through and I, and I do it even now where 
I get past the disappointment. I get past the, oh crap, I don't want to be here. And I just say, well, I'm pulling another all nighter and just, just, just crank it out. And then you kind of get into a flow and you go, even, even with writing, it can be like that sometimes. So really that hard work ethic will do it for mm-hmm. you. But man, I, if I can give you one thing, it's really just be on time. People are late all the time and it, and it just causes your whole day to be thrown off. Mm-hmm. How do you think um, like COVID impacted your career the greatest? So, you know, career-wise, COVID, 2020 was my worst year of speaking, mm-hmm. right? Because 2020 was an odd year because all the venues thought it was going to end quickly because our government, let's be honest, screwed it up so poorly, mm-hmm. right? Remember 15 days to stop the spread? Mm-hmm. Oh, we're just going to go home for 15 days. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, okay, we'll just... Well, this is extraordinary. And it, for a while, it was exciting. It was like, oh, wow, we, we got to stay home, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, and then that became two years. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> during a lot of that time, um, in in the work that I do in security, mm-hmm. people weren't, weren't, weren't doing deals. So mm-hmm. my company, the Georgetown Group, wasn't getting a lot of work, right? We had to lay off people. Uh, as a public speaker you know, for a while, there were no public speaking events. People had to figure out how to do it. But we're humans, we adapt. That's what humanity is all about. It's always been that way. And quickly, Zoom and Teams became like a big thing. I mean, Zooms, I have a friend who can retire now because two days into the pandemic, he's just a smart guy, right? I, you know, I wish he had just called me, but I probably wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have done this. I'm more conservative. Mm-hmm. He took every scrap of money he had and he invested it in Zoom and Teams. He just bought stock wow. in Microsoft and in Zoom and uh, everything, every dollar he had, everything that he had saved, his whole retirement account, he pulled it out of every, all of his investments and he just bought that stock. And, and it, uh, it went up by four times as much wow. because the, st- the stock skyrocketed and then he pulled it right out mm-hmm. <laughs> before it crashed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he gets to retire a lot earlier than I do, mm-hmm. but, but he doesn't have as many kids as I do. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, he made that choice. Anyway, um, the, uh, the, the pandemic really did change the way we work. It's a big, it, it's a thrust of the book I'm writing now because that mm-hmm. led to this rise in cyber attacks. We've become disconnected in a way we've never been before. Mm-hmm. I set up this studio. It looks a lot nicer when I, when I use my DSLR camera, not my webcam. And I have all my lighting set up mm-hmm. and I can, I can do a virtual keynote. And the whole idea is that I can, I can walk around while I'm doing it and make it look like I'm kind of on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2021 was great. And most of my keynotes were all virtual. Mm-hmm. So I never actually leave my home. I got a little lonely because it's not as fun when you don't see the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, it changed everything. It's changed how we work. Mm-hmm. 89% of U.S. companies have retained some sort of remote work environment. So that means that 89% of companies in the U.S. have not all gone back have not brought all their employees back. And over 50% of companies are allowing um, full remote still, even though we don't need to. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is now the the way that things are going to continue. Many companies are hiring you wherever you live. You don't have to move 
right? They don't have to pay for you to move across the country. So that that creates, you know, especially for young people coming out of college and looking for their first job, the, the job opportunity is better than it's ever been mm-hmm. because you can apply for, you don't have to apply for someone where you live or think I have to move. You can you can now apply wherever you are. So it's it's made a lot of changes. It it was challenging for me, but I adapted. I I jumped on board. I was one of the first speakers who really invested a lot of money in my setup. And that meant I got a lot of engagements because mm-hmm. my sound didn't go bad. My video looked really good. Mm-hmm. I went to a one terabyte up and down internet connection, paid through the nose for this business trunk that comes to my house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but every I there's five people in this house we can be doing anything and there's even a dip in speed it's it's, wow. it's incredible but that also means that i can shoot video in 4k when i'm doing a keynote and mm-hmm. um, it doesn't even flicker awesome and so i just have one final question um basically to wrap this up but what's your biggest piece of advice for current college students that are heading into the workforce yeah so well uh, other than what we talked about mm-hmm. biggest advice would be to work hard you get the mm-hmm. grades and you can find you can find somewhere right mm-hmm. it, it but it but it's not just really about grades anymore you have to show that you're a well-rounded hard-working person so when i look at a uh, resume uh and transcript mm-hmm. I, I usually flip to the transcript first uh, and then i say okay good grades we we've got past that threshold bad grades all right i don't even have to look at the resume mm-hmm. uh and then and then you want to see that uh, the individual, you know, was working hard in the discipline. So if you're, you know, what are you studying right now? Um, business analytics and supply chain. Okay, well, that, well you're, that's a really smart <laughs> idea. That right there in supply chain, my, my, um, my brother, Sean, is a systems engineer. He, mm-hmm. when he was in the Navy, he was an aviator. He got mm-hmm. out. He decided to go to Wharton. He studied systems engineering and everybody came to him right? Mm -hmm. Because he had great grades, systems engineering, which everybody needs. Supply chain is huge right now because we're failing all over the country in it. And um, uh, leadership Mm -hmm. because of his Navy career. So he had the ingredients. So in in what you're doing, show those good, but also show that you are, you're working in the discipline. You're doing something in your discipline that you eventually want to get to, even even whether it, you, you know, it, it might be some extracurricular work. You might be working with a company. You might be doing research or some writing on it that that shows that that you went one step above, and and that can be incredibly helpful because the, you know the the prospective employer is going to look at it and say, "Wow, this person can uh, can get started right away." Mm-hmm. Well, perfect. That's all the questions I have. I really appreciate your time and letting me interview you. It was great to hear about everything you've done. Good. Well, thanks, Katie. I appreciate it. I, I love giving back to Auburn, so mm-hmm. it was my pleasure to do it. And uh, and I hope you could get an A on this assignment. <laughs> Thank you so much. Good, good luck <laughs> with your second book. Thank you so much. All right. Keep in touch. Bye. War Eagle. War Eagle. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Thank you.